today. So we are continuing in our series on the supernatural, on the book of Acts right now, and asking how the Holy Spirit empowered the early followers of Jesus to live out his words, works, and ways, even amidst their troubles. Um, How was it that in the face of trouble, Christianity would grow from this small underground movement to a major influence in the world? What enabled these followers of Jesus, right, to love their enemies, to move past their divisions and prejudices, to, to face imprisonment for their convictions, and to even stare death in the eye? This was supernatural. So let's continue. We're in Acts 2. Uh, Take your Bibles if you have them, Um, starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. It's alive, it's active, it speaks to us even in the midst of our troubles today. We can trust it, we can lean into it, we can sit and let it influence our lives. So may the stories, um, may the truth of your gospel, of your words to us, penetrate our hearts today. Open our eyes to see, open our hearts to feel, open our ears to hear. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. So, hey, last, um, last week we shut down our normal operations and we join with a regional expression of the church. Uh, many churches from across the um, Philadelphia area gathered together. It was a beautiful moment. I mean, it was <clears throat> beautiful. I walked in, and um, man, one of my friends even said, he, he doesn't think anything like that has ever happened. Now, we don't know everything, but you know, on a Sunday morning, um, as one um, of the pastors commented, you know, mentioned 11 to 2, one of the most segregated hours, you know, a couple hours on, during the week, right? Uh, I don't, we don't know if anything like that had ever happened on a Sunday morning and needs to happen more. It was beautiful. So I walked in and I immediately, you know, this is an outside event and, uh, you know, there's hundreds of people there. I immediately run in to a lady that was instrumental in the early days of, of, of my, uh, you know, first following Jesus. I mean, she discipled me. She, she sat with me. She became family to me. She welcomed me to her home, into her family. And um, she was so instrumental. Um, and it was just so good to see her. I don't know how long it's been since I've seen her, 10 years, but uh, maybe you have people like that, right? And, and she, she was family. And, and then as the, the morning went on, I, I began to run into other people, right? So, uh, I didn't set, set, to meet anybody there, right? And I just kept running into people, friends that I've known, some for decades, others, you know, are are newer friends the last few months and years, and I ran into over 20 people from my journey. And as I I was pondering that and just sort of 
rejoicing in that. It's good to see all these people, especially after, you know, quarantine, right? Uh, You know, I just, the word family kept jumping out to me. Uh, And these people represent family to me. And then the the main speaker began to talk about family. And, And he talked about the family of God and this being a family where we lay down ourselves and take on the new family name where we become one where we bring our differences, where they're honored, and, and then this multifaceted wisdom of God is being made known to the world through this diverse new social order, learning to be family. And just thought, man, we can't miss what, what is happening here in the, in the book of Acts, right? And if we miss this, I'm afraid we miss the heart of, of a father. And on Father's Day, I, I want to lean in a bit to the heart of our heavenly Father. And in a way, the the book of Acts is a book about God's family mission. A father on mission, building a new family and blessing the world. You know, what Abraham and Israel and even David couldn't do, the church is now invited to be God's covenant family and represent him. Partner with him to bless the world, to reveal his character to reveal his heart, to reveal his covenant love. Covenant. Covenant. It's a, this is a covenant family, right? Covenant is a bind between two people. A lot of folks think God's love is unconditional love. No, God's love is covenant love. See, covenant love binds us together. Covenant love requires something of both parties, um, I can't just lean into unconditional love. I have to offer something. I have to bring something, right? The, the whole point of, of Jewish circumcision was a, it was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign that something in me was being cut and offered. This isn't cheap love. See, we want love that doesn't require anything from us. But see, covenant love requires both parties to lay something down. This, that's the whole point of the marriage vows, right? I, Alex, commit to you, Jacqueline. I, Jacqueline, commit to you, Alex, and we list our intentions, our vows to each other, our commitment. It's covenant. See, if this thing is going to work, I have to be in it for us, not just for me. See, marriage breaks down the moment we live, lose the vision of us. The moment the vision of me becomes more important than the vision of us, the marriage begins to break down. Now, don't get me wrong, there's individual rights and freedoms and gifts and passions and needs and I mean, but in our 13 years of marriage, you know, Jacqueline and I had to, had to learn how to bring those individual needs and perspectives and desires and rights and wants and gifts and submit them to us. And it's a process. And it's an uncomfortable process. It's a process that has taken much tears and years and counseling and work. See, it's easy to live for me. I'm pretty good at living for me. As a matter of fact, that's the trouble that we're going to talk about this morning, living for me. It's, we can call it individualism. Individualism, right? But you can't have an individual marriage, can you? You, you? you know, a covenant is about oneness. It's about two coming together as one in partnership and joint connection and intention and mission together. It's about bringing something very different together all while honoring those differences. Those differences are valued and respected and honored and and they're part of the equation, but they're all being laid down and submitted to us. That's covenant. 
And we see that in Acts 2. Family coming together under God's covenant love. And so to give us a little bit of context, Peter, right before this, is talking to Jewish people, and he's referencing David, and he's talking about the, the, the story of God, and he's talking about the, the, the covenant of God throughout their story, you know, to Abraham and Moses and David, and now to Jesus. And he's trying to help them understand what ha- what's happening here at Pentecost is part of that covenant family. What Jesus is doing and what's happening here is deeply connected to that whole story of the Father's desire for a covenant family. So watch this video. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great, so what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. 
The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who were becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. So did you catch that? Did you catch all that? I mean, God is forming a new covenant family, right? A family where all are invited. Jesus, a faithful Israelite from the family of Abraham and the line of David, and he, he's fulfilling the, all the covenant relationships. He's the faithful partner that we were all made to be. Though we failed, he's inviting us into his family to be remade, to be renewed, and to be formed by him and to partner with him and with his family to bring his goodness and peace to the world. Listen, there's lots of things that threaten this family mission. <clears throat> Think with me for a moment. If God's heart, right, is to enter into a covenant partnership with a family made up of all different kinds of people as a means to extend his kingdom and his goodness and his blessing to the world, his peace to the world. If that's the heart of the Father, you know how much like division and racism and prejudice and abuse and unjust treatment of others, you know how much that threatens the very nature of the Father's mission and heart? I mean, think about how much individualism threatens this dream of God. He's seeking to form a family. He's seeking to form a group of people who would come together in covenant partnership with him and with each other. His heart is to bring us together, and here we are looking out for me, fixated on what's best for me. And in some ways, we can't help it. We've been discipled by our culture, right? We've been, we bought into this American ideal, this American individualism, this dream that says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can be whatever you want to be. 
Go make a life for yourself. Go conquer. You're all you need. You're special. And then we bring that with us everywhere we go. Bring that in our families. I'm trying to teach my girls right now that when one person in the family is hurting, we're all hurting. When one person in the family is happy, we're all happy. Right? That's family. But what happens is, is we bring our individualism in and we say, no, I mean, well, how does this benefit me? We do that in the church too. And following Jesus becomes my personal journey with my personal Savior for my personal benefit. Following Jesus becomes my personal journey with my personal Savior for my personal benefit. Whether that benefit is something you see as primarily the, you know, the eternal afterlife and Jesus is simply used as a means to, to, to the end and then you go about living your life however you want or whether that's, you know, you believe Jesus is, um, you know, exists for your personal prosperity, you know, health and wealth and, he, and, and, and he's here to make your life better. Either way, the focus remains on me, my salvation, my life, my prosperity, my happiness, my wealth. The lens we view the world with is me. And then other people simply become a commodity, a tool to be used for my own benefit. And we call that consumerism. You know, where people and things are just commodities to be consumed. Consumerism, individualism, they rob us of this covenant love, this family that God is working to create. They deeply oppose it. And I think they're in their opposition um, to, to the world's healing, to God's mission. And we look here in Acts 2 and we begin to see a picture of a totally different way. We begin to see a picture of what a new covenant family looks like. Their lives are intertwined, so much so that you didn't know what belonged to who. They were together frequently. They sat at the table. They shared meals. They met at the temple. They gave up what was theirs for the sake of others. This is what family does. We bring our time, our talent, our resources our time, our talent, our resources, our treasures, and we submit them to each other for the good of us and not just me. You know, we see our time, our talent, and our treasures not just for my own good, but for the good of us. I want you to see the miracle in this. Friends, this was not just some PR uh, move, okay? This was not just some photo op or some hopeful idealism. This was more than just aspirational values that hang on a wall or um, corporate uh, policy, you know, written in a document somewhere. Man, they lived this thing. It says they, they every day devoted themselves to this with sincere hearts. This spilled into the crevices and messiness of everyday life. <clears throat> this is real 
stuff. This is Black Lives Matter and off-duty police officer people getting together on the, uh, you know, outside of a photo op, you know, for the sake of loving one another and listening to one another. This is liberals and conservatives sitting at the same table sharing a meal and learning and listening and loving together making time for one another. This is one person giving up $5,000 so that the person who only gave up $100 worth of stuff could have equal access and rights. This is one member suffering and others joining that suffering. This is one member uh, rejoicing and others uh, joining that joy. This is what family does. Listen to the vision of how 1 Corinthians 12 sees this family functioning. Uh, Paul uses the metaphor of a body. He says, the way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church, as the family. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters in to the exuberance. And oh man, what joy it says that it brought them to live like this. But this is not natural. This is not natural, is it? I mean, I, like I said earlier, I, I'm good at living for me, but this is not natural. I don't do this well. History shows us this. Our own lives show us this. Jacqueline loves the show Downton Abbey. I've watched it a few times, but you ever see that, you notice that it portrays what has been the the case for most of history, where different classes eat separate from one another. It's not okay for the, the wealthy and rich and famous to eat with those who are of lower class, and you would see in the show that, you know, they had those who ate at the upper levels and then those who ate in the basement. But man, this is what happens when a people of God catch a vision of his covenant-binding love. We don't just see life through me anymore. We see life through us. Now here's the thing as we close, as we wrap up today. um, This is disruptive to us. (laughs) I mean, this is disruptive to our individualism. Like this way of Jesus. And, and, and it requires that we die, like that something in us dies, right? You see, the way to go up in all of this is to actually to go down, and we don't like that. I mean, if you said, hey, you want to climb this mountain, and then you started leading me down, I'd be like, yo, why aren't we going up right now, right? Here's the thing. My friend Dan White, he put it this way in his book. He said, we often want a spirituality of success without the holiness of descent. We want to find a way to love that only requires a minuscule sacrifice from us. Love in our time has become convoluted by feeling good about ourselves, affirmation of our desires, and an overall positive vibe. You notice what the focus is there? Me. Feeling good about me, affirmation of me, and a vibe, a good vibe. He goes on to say, so we have an allergic reaction to a love that induces discomfort within. Naturally, this is why we gravitate toward people like us and away from people unlike us. 
Friends, if we want to begin to set the table for this kind of family, so to speak, we have to first descend. And dads, this morning on Father's Day, we miss this, don't we? I mean, as a, you know, part of our macho individualism, right, is this sense that it's not okay to appear weak, and it's not okay to give up our power and to submit and to, and to go low and to be tender and to feel and to be exposed. We, we don't think it's okay to do that as a father's. Yet this is the way of Jesus. This is the heart of our heavenly Father, right? Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father. And and in and, and Philippians 2, it says, He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The word emptied there is kenosis. Say that with me, kenosis. Kenosis. I want you to learn that word. This is an intentional, chosen, self-emptying, a voluntary humbling of Jesus to be with us, to be with those even who were against him. See, on the surface, we can say that we value these things. I can share this. I can post this. I can preach this sermon. But the truth is, without kenosis, Without a self-emptying journey, my impulses, oh man, my impulses will revert to self-preservation and individualism. My syntaxes, my nervous systems will fire messages at me so rapidly, right, in the moment of fear, that that's going to override all my good intentions to live this way on the surface. And so we need to submit to the deep work of kenosis. When we talk about processing life together, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, I need to get around different people. Part of it is just, I need to start sitting at the table with people that aren't like me. I need to just throw myself in, right, with others. But the truth is, that alone is not enough. Because there's, listen, there's plenty of marriages that fail, right? Just getting two people together, two very different people together under the same roof, um, living for the same vision, combining resources, that's hard, right? And that alone is not going to um, create this oneness, this new family. But it's a start. But the moment that we start disrupting each other and offending one another, right? And rubbing up against each other's differences. And, and, and that's the moment that we start to have to begin to, to submit to the, the, the downward journey of kenosis. And it's often the moment that most of us run away. And we rob ourselves of this deep family opportunity, friends. But listen, The same spirit that empowered Jesus to lay bare with his arms outstretched wide on the cross. The same spirit that empowered Jesus to lay his life down for his enemies instead of rising up to kill him. The same spirit is is within us. It's given to us. Friends, Jesus is, is not just an example to strive for, but he's the very means to freedom and redemption and renewal. And now we are empowered to do what we can never do on our own. Orthodox priest. Colostus Ware puts it this way. Listen, he says, the victory of his suffering love upon the cross does not merely set an example showing me what I myself may imitate. It is that, but also 
much more than that. His suffering love has a transforming effect on my own heart and will, releasing me from bondage, healing me, rendering it impossible for me to love in a way that would be beyond my own willpower had I not first been loved by him. Because in love he has identified with me, brought his victory to my body, and so Christ's death upon the cross is truly a life-creating death. Friends, may that life be in us. May that life be in us together as we lay down ourselves for others. Man, it's a messy and it's a bloody process, isn't it? I'll never forget becoming a father. I'll never forget the birth of my girls. Especially since I almost had to deliver the second one, but that's a story for another time. But birth is messy, isn't it? Birth is messy. Labor is intense. Yet after it's all done, there's this moment, right, where you look back and it's kind of hard to believe that this beautiful miracle came from all of that mess and, and trauma. And that's this process of becoming family. It's bloody, it's messy, but we're committed to it. We really do believe this is possible. I've seen glimpses of it. I really believe that in our polarized world, we can be a place that models and facilitates this kind of connection. Where, where people that have no business sitting together at a table otherwise, uh, come together, look each other in the eye, commit to one another, care for each other, weep with each other, rejoice with each other, extend God's love and goodness and peace to the world together. Will you go there with us? Will you embrace kenosis? Will you go low? Will you empty yourself? Will you weep with those who weep? Will you mourn with those who mourn? Will you rejoice with those who rejoice? Will you give up your time and your talents and your treasures for us? Will you show up at the table? Will you commit? Will you covenant even when it gets hard? Will you stay when we, when we offend you? Will, when we don't listen well? When we think more of ourselves? Will you stay and stick with us and help us see our blind spots? Don't run away. Will you let us point out yours? I know, this isn't the winning or losing our world offers us. This is a vision of a covenant-keeping father, zealous, zealous for extending, for a family, extending his goodness and peace to the world. Friends, we need it. Join us.